Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. But like I said, today is special for us. It's Independent Bookstore Day. And um, we're so excited to host Exposition Review. Um, it's an independently minded um, magazine. And it's so great to see the literary scene in Los Angeles flourish. Um, I think we have a really strong literary scene here, and um, maybe even unexpectedly so. I think people are much less pretentious of the literary scene here, and I think it is um, so nicely reflected in Exposition Review, where you see um, the spirit of USC's MPW program like shine through, and um, you see uh, partnerships with places like Write Girl that are truly bringing up the next generation of writers, and um, you see a nice pairing of like the already famous, like Claudia Rankine, Amy Bender, or David Ulin, and the soon-to-be-famous, like Iris Jamal Dunkel, Woody Woodger, Lisa Beebe, Mike Yim, I confess I chose names that were fun to say. Um, <laughs> and um, I also really appreciate the spirit of Los Angeles, we like to look good. And my goodness, the aesthetics are so beautifully attended to, um, not only in the literary writing, which is of the highest quality, but also uh, the visual aesthetics and the fact that they um, also publish short films, um, a different sort, sort of short film storytelling. I couldn't be more impressed and proud. Um, I will hand this over to uh, editors of, the I of issue three, uh, Lauren Gorski and Jessica Rowe. Let's please give them a warm round of applause. Hello. Thank you all for coming. This is so exciting for us. This has been like months in the making, um, if not more than that. Uh, so I just want to introduce you a little bit to Exposition Review, who we are, and what was so special about this issue. Because um, this is our third issue. And um, we're the two editors, but we've been working on Exposition Review since before it was an online journal, since it was in print, Southern California Review. Um, as I mean, lots of books are in print, but I feel like literary journals especially have been transitioning to digital. And we were so excited to be part of that transition. Um, and while we do have our roots in USC with our editors, our personal community has totally changed. You know, we do readings in bookstores, but our our contributors are from all over the world. Um, we're so excited to have our, some of our contributors read today, um, as some of the others in New York and Australia could not be with us. <laughs> um, so yeah, and, and we're really about multi-genre multi and multi-stories. So we do a lot of hybrid forms, we have experimental. You're going to hear a little bit of fiction today, some memoir, poetry, um, some plays. <laughs> and then our journal has so much more than that. As you see, we have visual arts, we have comics. Um, we, there, we have like experimental pieces, um, so I really encourage you. We just launched an hour ago, <laughs> so you can check it out online. But yeah. You guys have postcards with mm -hmm. the beautiful, gorgeous cover art by Val Britton, um, yeah. so you can grab if you want a little piece of it to take and hold with you. I like to just look at it. It's so right. And Jessica's going to share a little bit more about the theme. Before I do, I want to recognize our editors who are here tonight. Obviously, myself. We have Melinda, our stage and screen editor, manning the bar. <laughs> And we have Laura Rensing, our managing editor, managing photography today. So, like, cute. Uh, um, all right, and Jessica's going to tell us a little bit more about Orbit. Yeah. 
So um, each year we uh, choose a central theme to kind of build our issue around. Um, and we like our theme to usually kind of reflect where we are as a journal. So our first issue was Nine Lives when we transitioned from, you know, the print journal to a new life in digital form. Um, last year was Surface when we kind of took a look at ourselves and reflected on, you know, where we wanted to go, what trajectory we really wanted to take as we kind of came into our own. And so this year when Laura and I were thinking, like, where are we? You know, because we are still doing a lot of the same stuff. We've kind of built a a circuit for ourselves, a community for ourselves. We found our groove, you know, that we can can kind of follow and grow, and we want to continue to, you know, expand um, what we're doing, but also want to kind of continue on in the same vein. You know, we do a lot of events in our community, which is really great. Um, we do uh, so readings like this. We've also done workshops um, and uh, uh, panels where people can come at different events. Lit Fest Pasadena, Southern California, uh, no, Southern California Poetry Fest. Yeah. Um, um, we were at that two years ago. Um, we also do uh, Right Girl workshops, um, working with awesome organizations like Right Girl. And you'll actually hear um, two Right Girl mentees who are published in our issue this year. They will be reading tonight, which we are very excited about. Um, we also do a stage reading um, in the summer. So you're going to hear one of our plays today. Um, but we'll have multiple plays being performed um, later on in the summer. And we do that every year. Um, so those are kind of things we were all percolating on. And the idea came to of orbit and we were like that's kind of encapsulates everything we wanted to say um, but what if we get a lot of like weird space stories and um, it's like well we, we, we love space so what's what's the problem with that and we did we got a lot of weird stories we got a lot of fantastic stories um, and it was really wonderful we got about I think 300 submissions this year um, and we narrowed it down to you know our final count a lot of arguing um, a lot of debates a lot of reading um, and I'm so proud of the work that we're going to uh, present to you today. Um, these are some of the, the finest examples that we have in the issue, but all of the pieces are great, and we hope that you can check it out. It's www.expositionreview.com, um, and it is there. It is free for you to read, to enjoy. All of our issues are online for free, and um, yeah, so without further ado, we're going to kind of get started. I'll pass it back to Yeah. All right, so I'm going to introduce our first reader. And one thing I want to share, since we are so grateful to have Skylight Books be our host and to, we want to celebrate Independent Bookstore Day, we asked each of our readers today to share one book that inspires their work or their life, or they just read it yesterday and they're like, this is the only book I could find. Um, <laughs> so with that said, to kick off the reading and to start, we're also recommending some great books for us, um, is Sierra Davis. She's currently a junior in high school and a right girl mentee. She regularly contributes articles and comics to her school newspaper and is looking forward to becoming editor-in-chief her senior year. Aside from writing, her interests include computer science, graphic design, drawing, and calligraphy. Please welcome Sierra. <laughs> Hi guys, um, I'm going to be reading a portion of my story today, not the whole thing. Um, and uh, I guess for a book that inspires me, I would say um, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. That's my favorite book. Um, so my story is called The Impermanent Scar, and that's what I'm going to be reading for you today. Gloria hadn't intended to kill the 10-month-year-old child. She had been feeding it a pune puree when she took a break to use the restroom, leaving the baby strapped in his high chair. Upon her return, the boy's head had turned blue, unable to breathe. Panicking, she grabbed the baby, 
try, oops, sorry, trying to save it. She didn't know what to do. The child appeared to be suffering from an allergic reaction, but the mother hadn't forewarned her. There was no medicine to help. Gloria was about to call 911 when she felt the baby go limp in her arms. She saw its mouth fall open as its intensile eyes decayed into a vacant, lifeless stare. She dropped its body onto the table and heaved herself onto the tile floor, shaking in horror. She could not call the police, nor the Maddens. They would arrest her. This was all her fault. On her resume, she had lied about being highly experienced and fully trained in first aid and CPR. She had never imagined actually being in a situation where she needed such knowledge. Gloria contemplated how to escape punishment. She couldn't run away. The cops would find her. What else could she do? She had only two days until the Maddens returned. She called her sister. Hello? Maggie, help me, she whispered, trembling. Oh, hi, Gloria. What now? Maggie's, Maggie said. Maggie, shh. I, I know it's a bad time, but something awful happened and I can't discuss it over the phone, Gloria muttered worriedly. Okay, where should we meet? Maggie answered with suspicion. Um, how about the, in front of the school on Rosewood in 15 minutes? All right. Maggie wasn't clever or intelligent, but she knew a lot of people as she was a hopeful actress continually involved in community theater and improv festivals. Maggie's red bug pulled up in front of the school. Oh, thank God. Follow me, quick, qu follow me quickly, Gloria said, grabbing her sister's wrist and pulling her towards the Madden's house. What's going on? Maggie asked in her heavy Brooklyn accent, stumbling in her heels as she tried to keep up. I was babysitting, Gloria began quietly, not wanting to be overheard. The baby stopped breathing. What? You killed a baby? Maggie gasped. You have no business taking care of a child. Keep it down, Gloria warned as they climbed up the stairs to the front door. Look, Maggie, I, I have to pay rent. And it's not like I've never babysat before. The first time the kid made it through the night intact. This is only your second time? Maggie shrieked as they walked to the living room. God, you're such a mess. But where is the poor thing? The house felt still and sad. Maggie followed Gloria into the kitchen. I, I just left it on the table. I don't know what to do. I don't want to go to jail, Gloria screamed. Oh, Gloria, Maggie wailed when she saw the lifeless baby on the table. Before the Maddens left, the mother told me how her kid was a miracle. She said she won't be able to have any more kids, and she's just so grateful for her little boy, Gloria sobbed. I, I just wish I could go back in time and bring the baby back to life. Wait, that's not a bad idea, Maggie said matter-of-factly. Shut up, Gloria replied, irritated. No, 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 really. When I was in the crucifixion of Panko Submarine, remember the guy who played Crinkle? Maggie asked hopefully. Was that one of your plays? I didn't see it. Oh, well, the bizarre guy who played Crinkle told me how he paid someone to bring his cat back to life. Yeah, right. Wouldn't that be the type of groundbreaking story you'd see on Facebook? Gloria smirked. Well, maybe I misunderstood, but I can call him, Maggie suggested. She left the room and came back five minutes later looking vindicated. Gloria stared at her. I'm not crazy. Apparently the cat guy lives on 4th Street, just a mile from here. They pulled up to the dilapidated house cautiously. Maggie got out first, Gloria tracing her steps while holding the baby, wrapped in a towel. Maggie knocked four times very slowly per her friend's instructions. A gaunt, olive-skinned man wearing a sweatshirt answered the door. He looked normal upon first glance, but that impression quickly faded. His eyes were perpetually darting around, like he was scanning for attackers, and he hunched his back awkwardly. What do you want? 
He hissed, barely audible. We want to resurrect a baby, Gloria answered stupidly. I, I don't resurrect, but I can make copies, he said bluntly, gesturing for them to enter. Inside, they could see countless computers and machinery of unimaginable complexity. I will ask no questions. Just know that what I'm doing is illegal. I will clone the child, he explained. Of course, when a clone is complete, it emerges as a newborn. This child is older, I presume. Ten months. Then an age accelerator will be necessary. Be forewarned, as I have never done this before with a baby. <laughs> Only cats and dogs, once a chimp. Also, understand that this baby will be like a twin of the previous baby. It will not have the exact same mind, only the same body. Whatever. That's fine. Gloria agreed impatiently. How much will it cost? We need it by Monday. Hmm. Rush charges. The man wrote an astronomical figure on a post-it. Gloria nearly passed out. This is your life here, Maggie commented. Deal, Gloria whispered, shaking his hand. Um, in the interest of time, I'm going to save the end for uh, you guys to read on your own. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Our next piece is a non uh, memoir piece by Sherry Shahan. Sherry Shahan has more than 35 books to her credit, fiction, uh, fiction and nonfiction. Titles include adventure novels, Frozen Stiff, Death Mountain, and Ice Island. Her novel in verse Purple Days is set in the tumultuous 1960s. Shahan has been widely published in magazines, newspapers, literary journals, and anthologies, including Backpacker, Drink, Country Living, Family Fun, Los Angeles Times, San Francisco Chronicle, Christian Science Monitor, Oxford University Press, Ziziva, Confrontation, and others. She holds an MFA in writing for children and young adults from Vermont College of Fine Arts and teaches an ongoing writer's course for UCLA Extension. It's only because I've been doing this a very long time. So my inspiration is Big Fish by Lori Peelan. Lori came to our critique group, hi Davis, oh hi Cheryl, um, 23 years ago. 13 years ago, she sent out her manuscript, Big Fish Dreams. 10 years ago, she received a contract. Last weekend, we celebrated the book launch. Never give up. I'm going to read the first three pages of my personal essay, The Rabbit Died. The year was 1948 in the Southern California town of Long Beach. Sylvia Jean Brunner had just turned 16 when she met my smooth-talking father, Frank Webb Jr., who bragged about being an actor, even producing 8x10 black and white glossies, stamped with the signature of his Hollywood agent. My Midwest-born grandparents, Kiki and Art, were ultra-conservative, the odd couple at the beach in wool suits, hats, and gloves. Imagine their horror when their only daughter missed successive periods. Poor mom was rushed to the family doctor so fast she scuffed her black and white saddle Oxfords. After peeing in a paper cup, her sample was injected into a female rabbit. The rabbit died. 
Finger-pointing whispers ensued, a euphemism for a positive pregnancy test. But that's misleading since all rabbits tested died. A few days after the injection, they were surgically sliced open for an inspection of their ovaries, which would change in response to hormones secreted by pregnant women. No one took the time to stitch up the poor bunnies. They were simply tossed out with the trash. Later, frogs took their place in the lab. No birth control pills in 1960, though various forms of the tortuous IUD had been around since the 1600s. Mom's rabbit wasn't the last in the family to die. Mine bellied up 17 years later. While writing this, I wonder why Daddy wasn't charged with unlawful intercourse with the minor, more commonly called statutory rape, since Sylvia Jean was under 18. And why didn't the jerk-off use condoms, like no balloons, no party? <laughs> My parents had little in common other than his sperm swimming through her cervix and up her uterus. Maybe she wanted to escape her overly strict parents. Maybe he believed being married would help him clean up his act. In January 1949, my grandparents loaded and aimed the metaphorical shotgun. There aren't any photos of their wedding, but in pictures around that time, mom looked like a young Sophia Loren with dusky cat eyes and naturally full lips. She wore fashionable dresses with snug collars and form-fitting bodices. Her hair was drawn up on the sides in an auburn jelly roll, the back cascading in waves. Being married didn't keep her from being expelled from Long Beach High School. Her, her condition was too visible, evidence she'd done the dirty deed. Apparently, the principal didn't want other students imagining wild fun in the back seat of a convertible. My soon-to-be parents moved into a shabby little motel that proclaimed efficiencies, such as a kitchenette. Grandpa Art arranged for my dad to work on the assembly line at a factory that built aircraft. My teenage mom did the only thing she could and shut herself in the motel room, absent from family and friends. Other than sporadic visits from her best friend, she was alone, bored, and humiliated by her situation. So she turned to greasy burgers and fries from the joint across the street. Her enviable five foot six, 120 pound figure blew up by 70 pounds. I arrived mid-August 1949, 7 pounds, 13 ounces, 21 inches long. I probably would have been taller than my adult 5 foot 3 if I hadn't started smoking in the fourth grade. They named me Sherry Jean Webb. Around this time, one of Daddy's drinking buddies offered cheap rent, a furnished one-room cottage that shared a spacious corner lot with his family's rambling ranch house in San Fernando Valley. A newly painted white picket fence hemmed the cottage, but I imagined, beware to all who enter, whispered from the flower bed. Our new landlords, Margaret and Bill, 
whose last name I've lost, had a son my age, an insipid goody-two-shoes named Michael, who refused to be my accomplice when I snatched an unopened box of brown sugar from his parents' kitchen. I crouched on the side of the house, eating the entire box on my own, which is likely the reason I'm not all that fond of sweets. <laughs> Margaret and Bill also had a teenage daughter, so Daddy had a playmate, too. Thank you. Okay. So, moving right along, um, our, our next reader is going to be a little bit different because we had so many people reach out and were able to read, um, but a lot of poets were busy tonight. Like, where are the poets? Um, so because they couldn't be here, we wanted to share um, one, uh, one of the poems that are special to us that we really encourage you to read all of our poems. Um, even our uh, interview in the issue is with a poet, Edwin Bodney, um, who, also did it, who was also judging our flash contest. Um, but this isn't about Edwin Bodney. This is about Sochil Julissa Brumejo, who again couldn't be here, but our stage and screen editor Melinda Hensley will be reading. But I still want to tell you a little about Sochil. Um, she's a first generation, first generation Chicana and the author of Posado, Offerings of Witness and Refuge, a former Steinbeck Fellow, Poets and Writers California Writers Exchange winner, and Barbara Deming Memorial Fund grantee. She's received residencies from Hedgebrook, Ragdale, National Parks Art Foundation, and Poetry Foundation. Her work is published in the Ascentos Review, CalYX, Crazy Horse, American Poetry Review, among others. A dramatization of her poem, Our Lady of the Water Gallons, directed by Jesus Salvador Trevino, can be viewed at latinopia.com. She's a co-founder of Women Who Submit and a member of Macondo Writers Workshop. So please welcome Melinda, who will be reading one of her poems. <laughs> wow. Hi. Um, I genuinely, genuinely hope that I do this poem justice. It's called Ghost Interview with a Soldier in the Peach Orchard after Ghost Lions Collective. In your final moments, whom did you think of? Was this someone waiting for you to return? I worry I will never find that someone waiting behind a thick front door of a home we made together. Was your front door always locked or opened? Was it left open for you even after you were gone? If you could say one thing to your father, what would you say? What's one lesson you wish you could have taught your child? I still hope to have a child, so consider this advice. Dried peach pits litter the ground, reminding me of bones. Are your bones below the soil? Is this why you cling to the fields, snagging on branches like morning fog? How do you want to be remembered? If you could write anything on one of these monuments riddling the orchard, what would you write? Have you ever pledged allegiance to a flag? Any flag? Have you ever loved a flag like your mother's arms? Speaking of your mother's arms, what did they smell like when tucked tight below your nose? Fresh baked loaves, or maybe stone? I want a better simile, but I need you to tell me. I come to you alone at twilight because I'm always alone and I'm afraid. Are you here with me? Do you stalk the trees? I ask because I don't want to be afraid. Do you hate war? Did you ever love war? Am I totally off and is war like God? Unknown, all around, a mystery too big to understand? 
I wish I could tell you there is no more war and that your sacrifice has been remembered as a warning, but I can't. So let's talk about letters. Did you write love letters home with sign-offs like, I wait to hold you and forever yours? I want to believe in love like some believe in God. Will you help me? Do you think I'm crazy? Do you think I'm beautiful? No, really, like, would you date me? Don't answer that. Did I at least make you laugh? What can I say to make you smile? Please tell me there is something I can write to help us both let go. Thank you. All right. Our next piece is a fiction piece by Jason S. Dennis. Jason lives in Los Angeles. He attended USC's School of Cinematic Arts and works in advertising. His flash fiction has appeared in the Gettysburg Review and Exposition Review, also our flash contest, which we will talk about more later eventually. <laughs> but for now, welcome, Jason. So the uh, book that I'm reading right now is uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison. <laughs> Recommend that. They have it here. If you want to pick it up. So this is um, an excerpt of my story called Of What Fred Dreamed. One, prologue. Much is made these days of chasing dreams. Tales abound of people overcoming insurmountable obstacles to achieve their greatest desires. This is not one of them. <laughs> Fred Barnes dreamed as big as any, but in truth, few people are destined for greatness, and it seemed that Fred just wasn't one of them. Two, Fred's life. Fred worked as a grip on television commercials. He made $50 an hour, plus overtime most days, to set up and move around heavy film equipment. The tools of his trade were so extensive and cumbersome that their transport required a 10-ton truck. Many of these items had colorful names, like sea stands, fingers and dots, Fisher dollies, pancakes, beefy babies, and high rollers. Suffice it to say that these items looked less colorful than they sounded and were more difficult to master than they looked. By many standards, Fred lived a privileged life. He counted amongst his blessings a loving wife, a nice home in Santa Clarita, and the prospect of a pension through his local union. He drove a black, full-size crew cab Ford pickup with dual tires and flaming skull tailgate decal. A real sweet ride. It hauled his deluxe fifth-wheel trailer up mountain passes like a boss for long summer weekends at Kachuma Lake. In his living room sat a plush leather couch, a 60-inch Ultra HD television, a high-fidelity 7.1-channel audio system, an impressive collection of Criterion Blu-ray discs, and a Bad Boys 2 poster autographed by Michael Bay. <laughs> Some might say that Fred had a real sweet life, yet he couldn't shake the feeling that he was living the wrong one. This angered him. Sure, he smiled and acted agreeably, but underneath this facade, Fred was coiled as tightly as the high-performance Rancho brand shocks on his pickup. Petty things set him off, things beyond his control like traffic over the grapevine. Sometimes, alone in his truck, he would yell at the top of his lungs, a raw and guttural bellow. Anyone who, who, anyone who heard that deranged howl might have questioned Fred's sanity. Increasingly, he questioned it himself. 
Oftentimes, he felt that if he had to unload one more high roller stand off the tin ton because the director of photography couldn't stop fiddling with the background lighting, he was going to lose his shit. <laughs> he would walk up to the DP and whack the dubious European accent out of his mouth with a 15-pound shot bag, <laughs> storm over to Video Village and dump artisan cold-brewed coffee in the MacBook-covered laps of those smug agency fucks and take a rubber mallet to the douchebag director's Porsche Panamera, paid for by phoning in one Taco Bell commercial. <laughs> All that acrimony bottled up inside had over time transformed Fred's appearance. Despite the cheery can-do attitude he projected on set, cantankerous physical features betrayed him. His belly ballooned aggressively, eager to bounce extras out of the lunch line. His beard bristled like a porcupine, quills flexed toward production assistants who touched his gear. His antagonistic swagger deterred any son of a bitch from asking him to waive a meal penalty. Three, Fred's real life. What Fred really wanted to do was direct. He knew this was cliche, but he didn't care. He'd fallen into grip work as a quick way to pay the bills after graduating film school in heavy de debt. It was supposed to have been a detour that would eventually lead back to his real life. In his real life, the one he was supposed to be living, he no longer woke up at four in the morning, humped around heavy metal, or catered to the whims of hacks. Acclaimed for his creative genius, Fred called the shots, literally and figuratively. His contract forbade call times before 9 a.m. and work days longer than 10 hours, but studios didn't balk at these haughty demands. A prolific auteur, he cranked out at least one critically acclaimed feature film each year. Fred was paid handsomely for his genius. In fact, he no longer worried about money at all and had turned over the handling of his finances to a trusted business manager. A team of high-powered agents fielded requests for his services. His time was free to create. But at the age of 46, he feared that he'd lost forever the path back to his real life. He had no real, no body of work, no agent. When he chanced to mention his dream of directing to others, their half-hearted encouragements could not hide the skepticism behind their eyes. Annoyingly, Fred was a fantastic grip, and that's how people saw him. Because of this, his services were in high demand, and he worked constantly. With a jumbo mortgage, a home equity line of credit, two car payments, an installment loan on his fifth wheel, a comprehensive cable package with HBO and Showtime, and an unlimited texting and data plan for his iPhone, it was hard to turn down the money. <laughs> All this gripping left Fred very little time to pursue his dream. He felt this keenly. He couldn't relax. Unease pervaded his waking hours. This constant and unresolved anxiety fed the wellspring of his collar. He countered this by listening to motivational audiobooks like The Secret and The War of Art. Between setups, he found quiet places away from the camera to meditate and visualize his real life. During lunch, he snuck off to the tin ton and wrote daily affirmations, stating what a brilliant and successful director he was. He tried to carve out a little time and space each day for his dream, but he never seemed to gain traction. Four, Cal. For unbeknownst to him, poor Fred battled an invisible and terrible force greater than he could imagine. The cunning overlord of Los Angeles, the mini Satan who ruled that land, fed off of broken dreams. The more people who dreamed, the more powerful this evil entity became. And everyone dreamed in Los Angeles. So, with each passing decade, and with every wide-eyed transplant from Michigan or North Dakota or Maine or wherever, this demon grew bigger and stronger and hungrier. His name was Cal, and he lived at the southeast corner of Beverly and La Cienega. <laughs> from whence his dominion extended out in a 30-mile radius. His kingdom was known to many as the Studio Zone. Within the Studio Zone, Cal orchestrated complications, great and small, to thwart people's dreams. Nobody made it there without his explicit consent. He bestowed fame and fortune on a select few from each generation. This was part of Cal's plan. He needed poster children to inspire his flock. 
to convince the hopefuls that dreams really can come true. But success was dear. Cal would never allow his famous ones to enjoy their achievements. It's no coincidence that so many celebrities suffer addiction, disease, and catastrophic accidents. Happiness and satisfaction made him sick. Dejection and misery, those were dishes into which Cal could sink his fangs. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> you can tell we have a diverse mix of, of work. <laughs> so next we have another right girl mentee, another fiction piece. Uh, Drew Shinozaki lives in Rancho Palos Verdes, California, where she attends Palos Verdes Peninsula High School as a freshman. This will be her first publication. Please welcome Drew. <laughs> Um, my favorite, um, one of my favorite books is written by Anthony Dower, and it's All the Light We Cannot See, and I absolutely love that book because the descriptions are stunning and the imagery is beautiful, and I hope that one day I could write like that in the future. Um, okay, so I'll begin reading my piece, and... Nova watches the rain trickle down the window pane as the spices from the kitchen waft up to the second floor bedroom just right of the staircase. Bat drops of water slide from the glass in opposing directions, colliding and sliding together to the wooden still at the bottom of the glass. Outside, the sky is gray. The mist rolls in from the horizon and settles placidly near the lampposts and dew-crested park benches. There are numbers of various sizes and shapes that float through Nova's mind, pushing at her skull and pressing at her temples. The same number repeats itself, 52, 52, 52. The number 52 floats around in the galaxy of static thoughts in her mind and she presses her fingertips together. 52 more days until her father comes home. Somewhere amid the numbers and the static, there is a bright color. It jabs and pushes away the fuzz in her mind, and Nova focuses on it, letting the color envelop her. It is her mother's voice calling from the kitchen. She stands up, brushing the dust off her earthy brown skirt made of crepe, an old leaf textile. Her feet patter against the steps. Nova thinks of the raindrops that patter against the upstairs window. She and her mother eat together around the round table while wild mint and juniper drift from the pot of herbs on the kitchen windowsill. The lights in the kitchens cast rosy glows on their skin and the pot of candle in the center of the table flickers and shines. There's an empty chair to the right of Nova and it is the same empty chair that is to the left of her mother. 52 more days, Nova thinks carefully to herself. Other days, it does not feel the same. The empty chair is casually ignored, the elephant in the room pushed out of the front door and into the empty neighborhood streets. On these days, Nova does not remember that there is an empty chair, another person. She does not remember what it feels like to have a third member of the family. 52 days pass. The door to her house opens, her father walks inside. Nova is upstairs when it happens, gazing out the window with the rain that tapers softly against the glass. The rain has ceased to a faint drizzle, a spray of water that specks the glass into millions of fractals of drops. When Nova is called downstairs, it is her father's voice she hears. She slides down the stairs, two steps at a time, and wraps her arms around him, hugging him tightly. His green uniform is scratchy and tough against her face. His own face is wrinkled, yet overjoyed. Nova sits down to eat with her mother and her father. It is odd to have no missing chairs, and she delves deeper into her mind for comfort. 
There are no numbers. It is strange. The patterns are disrupted. She doesn't know what to think. Her father stays for a week. Noah becomes used to the third chair that is always filled, the father who drives her to school, the father who cooks her breakfast and sometimes dinner. She laughs and she smiles, and she hugs her mother and father in happiness every night before she goes to bed. Somewhere in her mind, there is a number seven. Seven, seven, seven. Seven more days until he must leave. When seven days pass and her father is gone, Nova sits at the dinner table, her eyes focusing on the empty chair. It feels wrong for it to be there with its wooden frame and mismatched paint. Her father should be there, sitting aside her, laughing and talking with her. Nova returns to her room where the rain slides against the window. She cannot see the individual drops that illuminate with moonlight. She reaches over to draw the curtains. It is late. As she lays in bed with the covers tucked up to her chin, she delves into her mind of numbers and static and color and fuzz. She searches for numbers. Her mind is empty. She does not know when he will return home. There are no numbers within her reach. Thank you. So our next piece is a um, excerpt of a play from Charles LaPere. Charles is not here, but he connected us um, with a friend of his who is an actor and is going to be performing for us. Um, before we get started, I'm going to read a little bit about Charles. So Charles is a former fellow of the Edward F. Albee Foundation, a native of Chicago. He is a graduate of Northwestern University and a member of the National New Play Network's New Play Exchange. He lives and writes in New York City and is a member of the Dramatists Guild and ASCAP. Shays Rikers has Irvin Fairy Tale, which is what you'll hear tonight, um, was read in a theater for the New York City New or New City New Blood reading series in June 2017. His play Cream Cakes in Munich was awarded first prize in the Tennessee Williams New Orleans Literary Festival One Act Contest 2016. Swimming at the Ritz, his original portrait of Pamela Churchill Harriman was developed with award-winning BBC director David Giles and supported by the Arts Council England with a U.S. premiere at the New Jersey Repertory Company in 2015. Um, and so tonight, it will be uh, an uh, excerpt from um, Shea Riker's will be performed by Robert Petkoff. Robert has performed in film, TV, and on stage in the U.S. and around the world. Um, he was most recently seen in L.A. as Bruce in the musical Fun Home at the Amundsen Theater and on TV in Madam Secretary. On Broadway, he was last seen in All the Way with Brian Cranston. Other Broadway credits include Anything Goes, Spamalot, Ragtime, and Fiddler on the Roof. He is an Audie and Earford's award-winning audiobook narrator, being privileged enough to narrate work from such authors as David Foster Wallace, Michael Cortia, and Cressley uh, Cole, to name a few. He lives in New York City, um, and we're so happy to have him. I'm very honored. So, uh, welcome, Robert. Hi. Uh, we'll continue with the David Foster Wallace. That's my recommendation for tonight. Uh, the Pale King uh, was the last of his novels, uh, really incomplete, but even being incomplete, better than I'd say half the things I've ever read in my life. Uh, challenging and unsettlingly good uh, is, I, I highly recommend. They follow a whole section of Foster Wallace back there. Um, so, Shea Rikers, an urban fairy tale or an urban fable by Charles Liebert, Act One. 
Evening, a prison cell on Rikers Island. At center, a small linen-covered dining table, quite elegantly set with candles, crystal, silver, and two dining chairs. The Masseys, Meg and Sam, a well-to-do couple in their 60s, dance about the cell. Meg in a torn evening gown, a single strand of pearls about her neck. Sam in a torn sleeve, soiled tuxedo. They waltz elegantly about the cell as a waiter in white, serving uh, in a white serving jacket, plays Moon River on the accordion. Along the corridor comes Captain Geraldo, Hispanic, 40s, quite dapper in beret, ascot, fatigues, boots, revolver. He has a disfiguring scar on his left cheek. Captain, I hope I'm not intruding. Meg. Oh, bravo, bravo, our savior. Como esta? Oh, muy bien, el capitán. What's beautifully made beds. How nice of you to notice, cueing Sam to stand. Sam? We were just taking a stretch between courses, Captain. I took the liberty of bringing down your sable. It might be a bit chilly later in the evening. Thank you, Miguel. The Captain helps her into her sable coat. Please forgive my odor, Captain, but I haven't been able to send home for a change, and Matron confiscated my little bottle of eau de Guerlain. It's cold. These cold structures are like barns. But then we can't expect Shea Rikers, can we? A joke? Ha! <laughs> oh! <laughs> Sam, I want you to call the president first thing in the morning. You have his private number. The president has resigned. Resigned? Donald resigned? <laughs> Can he do that? The peaceful transmission of power, madam. The president and his family have retired to their vacation retreat in St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg? I didn't know they had a second vacation home in Florida. Russia, Meg. You remember the little Russian White House? For how long? Their stay appears to be a permanent one. He took his golf clubs and a hairdresser. <laughs> How sad. A man with so much business expertise. You'd be foolish not to use him, Captain. Oh, we have used him. Well. Will you be joining us for dinner, Captain? I've already had mine. Oh. Oh, I want to thank you for closing down the airport. We're sleeping so much better now. The Captain examines a chair. This chair is Duncan Fife. Yes, we only have the two left. That's all we could salvage from our dining room set. That and the family silver. Paul Revere, the George III pattern. Yes, Sam's mother's part of a setting of 12. Minus two demitasse spoons, pearl dropped down the disposal. Charming, such a sense of occasion. Oh, please, sit. Meg edges her chair over to sit next to the captain. We'd like to thank you for saving our lives. It's such a shame, really, all this civil disruption, just when America was getting so great again. And, and so white. Yes, well, as the French are so fond of saying, plus ça change, plus la même chose. Are the barricades and barbed wire still up on Park Avenue? They're down now. We're replanting the azaleas. Thank goodness. Oh, we owe you so much. We owe you our lives. As soon as law and order are restored, we'd like to have you to dinner. There are some people you should meet. I'd like that. I'd like to propose a toast to the American Spring. The American Spring. Salud. Salud. 
the American Spring, such a catchy name for a movement. It almost <laughs> sings of hope and possibility. Ring-a-ding-ding. <laughs> a look between the captain and Sam. How did you come up with it? Our marketing boys worked it up. Every revolution needs a good branding. American Spring, the change you've been waiting for. Lovely. That, I think, says it all. Gracias. Like Sam did at the bank. T. Graph Financial, banking on the future. Too bad we got it wrong. No problem. We're working with the Wall Street boys now. They see opportunities for us in new financial products. Really? Oh, I hope you'll let us in. It's what we've always wanted, Sam and I. More opportunities. A better world. For everyone. They drink silently. Then... If people could just be satisfied with their lot. That's what we were taught at Sacred Heart Acceptance. Acceptance. Keep your hands folded neatly in your lap until it's your turn to talk. She does so. I mean, there are some things you simply cannot change. Certain inequities are built into the system. That's what gives society its stability. There will always be the haves and the have-nots. Read Jackie Collins. Read Barbara Cartland. The truth is there. The good book said it best. The rich are always with us. I think that was the poor, Meg. We're just doing a little necessary restructuring right now. Oh, you have to. That's what Sam does at the bank. Every few years, he restructures, shakes things up, puts the fear of God into the little buggers. It keeps everybody on their toes. Exactly. I'm sorry you can't join us for dinner. We understand it's our last night. Yes, it is. Tell us about your scar, Captain. Oh, yes, do. Does it hurt? Only when I smile. He smiles. Painfully. End of excerpt. All right. <laughs> okay, so our final reader tonight um, is Renee C. Winter. She's going to be reading some of her nonfiction. Renee is a writer whose essays have appeared in the Coachella Review, Q Literary Magazine, Prenzy, and the 2016 anthology Tales of Our Lives Reflection Pond. She has presented her work at the annual Celebration of the Muse event honoring female writers living in Santa Cruz, California. A retired attorney, Renee currently is a volunteer writing instructor at the Santa Cruz County Jail. Please welcome Renee. <laughs> Thank you. It's really an honor to be here. Um, so the book uh, I recommend, because my book club finally agreed with my selection, is uh, <laughs> Exit West by uh, Moham Asid, if I'm pronouncing it right. And I saw it. It's now in paperback. It's uh, uh, one of the New York Times top five fiction of last year. And it deals with a very current topic of uh, migrants. Okay. So I've edited this to for time constraints. Um, when daughters float out of orb. When I was a teenager, my mother threatened to throw herself in front of a truck if she thought my older sister and I no longer loved her. I tried to imagine the scene. Would she stand on the edge of a highway and run out when an 18-wheeler came speeding by? Would she do it at night, in front of us, I envisioned her sprawled on the pavement, auburn dyed hair in place, 
her skirt spread about her, a high heel flung off. No blood, no broken bones, no breath, just quiet. Would it be our fault? Decades later, I recalled this threat as I stood before mother's hospital bed. Was her trip to the ER another attempt to reinforce her gravitational pull when she feared her daughters were floating out of orb? And not this time. Even she couldn't fake the grayness that claimed her face, the ghost-like pallor that demanded I pay attention. Her white hair blended into the starch pillowcase. An IV dripped clear liquid into stark blue veins that formed a tiny road map across her hands. A thick fleece blanket wrapped mother's small frame like a cocoon, but promised no vibrant metamorphosis. I located her in the holding area after wandering a labyrinth of halls pockmarked with abandoned stretchers. She appeared asleep, oblivious to the rhythmic beeps of machines or the tapping of my high heels on the scarred linoleum. Her heart monitor spiked life, but she delivered not a moan. Is this what it will be like when mother's dead? If mother were awake, she'd be yelling, get these contraptions out of me and me out of here in the bullying voice that was her soundtrack. I'd spent my life devising strategies to limit my exposure to her fuming, fuming toxins. I'd relinquished my mother to the care of my sister long ago because Arlene never could or maybe never wanted to navigate and escape from mother's demands. She took each verbal punch like a child's clown bag, waited in place to easily bounce back for more. Wearing her cape caretaking mantle as comfortably as a frayed winter coat. My sister washed our mother's clothes, picked up her groceries, chauffeured her to every appointment. Her own needs and desires had been put buried for so long, they were like scraps tossed into the disposal. She couldn't reach in deep enough to grab them back if she tried. Arlene dropped in the dark green vinyl seat next to me in the waiting room. Any news? I shook my head. We relaxed into our familiar conversation vacuum. Those sisters, the common ground we shared was barren, populated by parents who had wandered away at different times and on separate journeys. Neither made a path wide enough to include their two daughters. Our father had disappeared after the divorce. Mother left us years later to chase a runaway second husband. The wound from her being AWOL during my adolescence still festered. Why was I waiting in the waiting room now? A white-coated doctor appeared. I'm afraid it's necrosis of the colon. It's black. It has to be removed. Necrosis? I flipped my mental Rolodex of biology terms. Didn't necrosis mean something was dead? A woman in her early 80s has a 50-50 chance of surviving such an operation. If she pulls through, she'll wear a colostomy bag for the rest of her life. 
My mother, who had cha-cha'd and tangoed in three-inch heels and tight pencil skirts at many a singles dance, wearing a bulging bag to catch her waist, I closed my eyes. And what if you don't operate? She'll die within three to four days. There it was, that truck coming down the highway. Should we let mother remain in its path or pull her out of the way? The stranger was delivering our mother's life to us. He wanted an answer, and I had only questions. If we did nothing, what would those few days be like? I envisioned keeping vigil at mother's side, watching disease spread like poison, holding hands as they chilled. Would she let go peacefully, or would she thrash and beg? If anyone had the guts to let mother die, it was me. Would I feel relief, regret? If mother survived, it would be my sister who would change the waste pouch. Is that what Arlene wanted? What shall we do, my sister whispered. I sensed that old fear we shared and printed on us since childhood. It was like a tattoo that faded over time but could never be obliterated. We'd learn a lesson early avoid any behavior that might trigger mother's anger. Make a decision that would result in her dying, she'd haunt us. Make a decision that would leave her feeling dirty around the clock, she'd blame us. A gurney rumbled by, visitors shuffled into the waiting room. One nibbled McDonald's french fries and their salty aroma swirled. Had anyone overheard our conversation? What would people think of a daughter who chose to let her mother die? Should I care? I looked at my sister. Her hand remained clasped to her mouth. Let's take our chances. Thank you to all of our readers for reading today. I want to give another. Yeah, and thanks again to Skylight for hosting us. Um, we are having a reception continuing after the reading. So there's wine, beer, water, lots of snacks, front and back of the store. I um, really encourage you guys to continue conversations with each other, with the readers that, that read today. And also, these are just excerpts or pieces um, of larger works that we have featured our new issue, along with a bunch of other um, pieces we encourage you to read. So, yeah. Um, well, well, no, because we mentioned this a couple times. So we forgot to mention it the first. Um, but we currently have our flash competition. So if anyone out there is a writer, um, our flash competition is open right now. Um, we accept uh, short uh, works um, in multiple genres. So even flash screenplays, uh, flash poems, nonfiction, um, and fiction. Um, that will close on May 5th. Um, it's judged by Edwin Bodney. Um, we do award a cash prize to the winner. Um, if you want to see an example of work that's featured, you can check out Jason Dennis's piece, um, which won. Uh, so last spring for our Shangri-La contest, um, Lizard People and Me, it's fantastic. I love it. Um, and you can, as you can see, you know, winners of our contest go on to be published in our main issue. Our main issue accepts um, submissions from September to December, so we'll open up again um, next fall. Uh, so a little PSA advertisement plug. Um, but again, yeah, thank you guys so much yeah, for coming. It was amazing. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. 
Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.